Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. This week's episode has been sponsored by A Thing or Two, which is a podcast hosted by Claire Mazur and Erica Cerullo, who you might know as the co-founders of the website of a kind, RIP, or the co-authors of the book Work Wife, which I've had on my podcast. They're all about discovery and enthusiasm. This podcast has been described as a unique mix of urgent discussions of non-urgent things and thoughtful discussions of important and otherwise ignored things. And uh, I'm very much on board with that take. Claire and Erica also send out a weekly companion newsletter with a diehard following. You can sign up to receive it at claireanderica.com. So thanks so much to Claire and Erica and their fantastic podcast, A Thing or Two, which you should definitely check out. I'm here today with Gigi Lavangi, who's the author of several novels, including The Starter Wife, which was adapted as an Emmy-winning miniseries starring Deborah Messing, and Maneater, which was adapted for a Lifetime miniseries starring Sarah Chalky. Her latest novel is Been There, Married That. She also wrote the screenplay for the movie Stepmom with Julia Roberts and Susan Sarandon. Her articles have appeared in Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, and Glamour, and she currently lives in Los Angeles. So welcome, Gigi. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me, Zibby. Gigi's being so patient because I just had about 15 minutes of technical difficulties when my computer decided to, you know, update for no apparent reason. So anyway, thank you so much for being so chill. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Been There, Married That. Loved this book. Laughed like the entire time I read it. Yay. What is Been There, Married That about and what inspired you to write it? Okay, it's basically a funny take on a ruthless Hollywood divorce. It's about a Hollywood writer who one night finds herself locked out of her own home. And afterwards, she has to navigate a high-stakes divorce with her OCD producer husband with the help of her jailbird sister. And it's also, at the same time, she's dealing with perimenopause and a prepubescent teenager. Basically, it's hormones and divorce all at once. Yay. Real Real life. <laughs> Yes. Hashtag, this is 40s or something, right? Oh my gosh, yes. (laughs) How autobiographical is this book, would you say? I would say it's semi-autobiographical because I do borrow from my own life. I try to use universal themes. They, They sort of come to me. Widowhood, divorce, loss. Loss, but wait 20 minutes and becomes a comedy. So it's autobiographical, but I do change a lot of the, I I really heighten it and I put a funny spin on it. I feel like even like each sentence that you throw in is something funny. It's like your observational humor and just all the everyday stuff. I look at it and I, we were talking about this earlier when I started paging through my book, I thought, wow, where do all these one-liners go from? Because you don't realize when you're writing something and you're in the flow and it's coming and there are no breaks, you know, what it's going to turn out like. But I really, in my life, like I said, tragedy plus 20 minutes is comedy. And that's, <laughs> that's what I like to write down. And that's what I like to entertain people. Well, you certainly do that. Thank you. <laughs> Very good Thank you. One of the parts of the book that I found just so funny and like a total just escape, I don't know, just so funny, was how you wrote about your 
your character's lavish LA lifestyle and the jokes you made about it. And I'm just going to read a couple parts because I thought they were really funny. You wrote, you're never alone living in a 10,000 square foot house. I know it's counterintuitive because staff. Staff is everywhere you want to be. You hire a team of gardeners, housekeepers, a house manager, unless you want to make your concrete tyrant a full-time job, a chef, a florist, a feng shui master. Every day there are people coming in and going out and half the time you have no idea who they are. I binge watched Downton Abbey recently and I can tell you the tears the sisters cry are real. The housekeepers and gardeners and assistants get to leave to go home. The rest of us are surrounded by invisible tripwires. Yes. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. So obviously, as we joked about before, you know, first world problems, right? Oh, beyond. Yeah. But still so funny. Did you get any pushback at all about making this relatable or, you know, there's so much, I feel like, vitriol against the wealthy right now. Is it still funny? Is it still okay to to talk about? Well, I love making fun of rich people. (laughs) You know, I don't, because I'm sort of an outsider or I was an outsider in that world, I could really observe from an outsider's point of view. And also my protagonists are always relatable. They're clumsy, they're vulnerable, they make mistakes, they don't fit in, they're kind of like me. (laughs) And so that's my point of view. So that's how I come into it. And who doesn't love, like, when I grew up watching Dallas or watching Dynasty, and we love watching rich people falter. And that's kind of what I do with with my books. You know, I'm not putting them up on a pedestal, as you know. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) One more passage that was really funny about this house situation, which I feel like plays a big role in the book. I mean, you refer to this house a bazillion times and what goes on in the house. Yes. You know, the dead zone, how there's no cell service, and it's it just becomes so funny. Anyway, you write, every time Trevor left town, he'd be replaced by a crew working in the house. Men in jeans and work boots, pool belts slung low around their billowing waists. There was always something broken in a house this size, usually more than one thing, usually many things. That light, this faucet, that chair, this psyche. Meanwhile, whatever was broken was guaranteed to cost as much as a Kia. What's that dude working on? Finn said. Finn's the sister of the protagonist. Finn said as she sniffed and narrowed her cat eyes at a man traipsing through the kitchen with paper booties covering his work boots. No idea, I said. Light fixtures? And I think a deck chair is broken. Huh, she said. And then another worker was cutting through the kitchen from the deck. Cat belt, toolbox, booties, I guess, electrician? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. This, like, really just tickled me. I thought this was just so funny. What do you get out of, like, poking fun at this whole way of life? Does it just amuse you? Do you laugh at it, too? Does it just, like... Tell me about what you get from this. Well, I get a a lot of pleasure from sort of exposing the downside of living in that way. Really, my whole, I really want to downsize everything in my life. I want to, my closet, you know, all that stuff. And I think there's so much comedy in these worlds that people don't really see on a day-to-day basis, you know. I mean, what is it like to have people in your house all the time if you live like I assume a one-bedroom apartment, you don't have staff. And people think that's, a, you know, well, it would be great to have a ton of people taking care of you. It kind of gets old, and I, I don't have that anymore. But I do think, I remember, I think it's funny and, you know, hearing the stories about people dealing with all the different personalities, like, you, you know, these movie stars and everything, 
kind of at the beck and call of the people who work for them. <laughs> you know, I think that's really funny. But as a writer, I like my solitude. I like simplicity. I like structure. And so that's just not the world for me. But I thought, I just find a lot of comedy to be mined there. I mean, I don't want to make fun of poor people. You know, it's not... <laughs> Where's the fun in that? I don't, you know. So there you have it. (laughs) (laughs) You also joke a lot in this book about the consequence of having highly overprivileged kids in this environment. And Mm. you make some joke about the protagonist, Agnes, asks her friend Liz, she says, do you know any kids who do chores? Yes, Liz said. They're east of the 405, which is funny. We're sitting here in L.A. doing this interview and it's a geography joke, really, that, but by saying, like, yeah, they're kids who do chores, but we don't know any of them. Yes, no, they, they don't live west of the 405. I was told once by a psychologist that there's neglect, you know, on both sides of the spectrum. If there's too much money, parents aren't as invested, usually as invested in their children, but they throw money at the problems. And we see that, right, all the time. And then the other side of the spectrum, people are working two or three jobs. They can't keep tabs on their kids, and that's, that's difficult as well. So raising kids with money, I really think you have to try to keep things as normal as possible, or else your kids are going to be food someday when the re- revolution comes. <laughs> I have that line in you the You did. Book. That was a good line. <laughs> I might be misquoting myself, but... <laughs> There are a lot, a lot of lines like that. But I think it's it's like with anything, you have to be grounded, invest time in your kids, not so much money as we're seeing with the college, buying their way into college, that catastrophe. It's just too easy to do things the easy way, and it's never the right way. Very true. Thank uh, you. <laughs> there's another section, and I'm sorry, I keep being like, this section's so funny. And I love this it. This section's so funny. So sorry to be like, boom, boom, boom. But yeah. um, the section where Agnes is researching symptoms of peri- perimenopause was so, I just read this out loud Oy. to Kyle last night. Oh my God, it's so funny. I mean, this, that, the other thing. And you're like, how can you get rid of it? And you said something like, reduce stress. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it's just so funny because, like, everybody, every problem every, everybody has. The advice is always to reduce stress. It's like, yeah, and how do you do that? Yeah, I, right. like if that's so easy, I wouldn't have these other problems. I don't know. Like, exactly. Really, like that's like easier said than done, sort of. But the funniest part of that whole thing is that the mom has a daughter who's now going into puberty as she is going through perimenopause. Right. Has to deal with her being like, Mom, I have this hair. Do you want to see it? And she's like, Oh, no. Yes, <laughs> her first pubic hair. Oh, my gosh. So, and you were, so, you said something funny. I can't remember exactly about something like, you know, for the love of God, like, why? Why would, why would God? But these things at the same time in life that the girl and the mom would go through these at the same time. Just talk to me a little about that. Well, first of all, for those of you who aren't in perimenopause or aren't menopausal yet, congratulations. (laughs) Uh, Good for you. It is when I was going through it and I'm in my mid-50s now, it was and I was going through a divorce at the same time. And it was like a roller coaster ride, but to hell. You know, insomnia, night sweats, but having the hot flashes, you know, when you're meeting with your attorney or whatever, embarrassing. But also there's something great about the fact that we are just freaking animals, that we're not special, that this is the cycle of life. 
And this is what we're supposed to experience if we are lucky enough to make it past a certain age. So I'm very grateful just to be here. So if I have to, if every single bit of me has to dry up (laughs) like dust and blow away, I'm okay with that because I can still function. It's really, this sounds so corny, it's really a gift. But as we know, hormones are everything. And I was lucky I got through it without murdering anyone that I, <laughs> that I know of, right? So there you go. <laughs> you talk a lot in this book about the book industry. And it was so nice to have a oh, character God. who's a writer. I mean, I feel like I can't believe more people don't end up doing that in their books. But you have all these funny references to book readings at Book Soup and having to leave yesterday because of the traffic and how the reading culture in L.A. is is funny and that there's a book group and people are like, oh, no, I didn't read the book. Reading is depressing. And like all these funny things. What is it like? What is book culture like in LA? Well, there are definitely book clubs and I've tried a couple of them. So there are definitely avid readers in LA, but I think they're more so than in New York. There are people who read the reviews, maybe a paragraph of the review and then they... <laughs> and then they They kind of know the book, you know. Look, we're all on our, and it's gotten worse because we're all on our phones at night when we should be reading books to go to sleep. We're on our phones, scrolling through Instagram, commenting in our heads about somebody's plastic surgery, you know, that sort of thing. So we're not, we're probably not reading as much as our brains would like. But I just kind of, I love poking fun in L.A. I'm a native. I grew up in Hollywood. I went to Hollywood High, UCLA. L.A. to me is like the most fun to make fun of. So, of course, that goes into books. And I used to sign books like, I, you know, I know you'll never read this, but thank you for buying. That's <laughs> at my book signings in L.A. But hopefully this book will be read and people will enjoy it. We'll see. see. (laughs) You also poke fun again at, let let me talk about the 50 things you poke fun at. Yeah, I know. The optioning of material. Oh my gosh. And you are in the throes of it all. You've had several things made, Starter Mm -hmm. Wife and Maneater and Mm -hmm. how, so I can read this paragraph, but I feel like I've been reading half of this conversation, but it's just so funny. I just love reading you read, I mean, hearing you read <laughs> Oh, good, because I'll, <laughs> so there's this one scene, and this might be my last quote, but probably won't be. There's this one scene where the makeup artist tells Agnes that she must feel so cool for getting her book optioned. And you write, I didn't tell her option in Hollywood is lingua franca for don't quit your day job. My project had a 0.00001% chance of getting made. Option means a Hollywood reporter or variety announcement that you paid more to your publicist to run than you deposited in your bank account. At the end of the day, there's night. (laughs) An option costs you more than no option. A better option, not option. Okay, I'm done. I'm out of options. (laughs) Okay, so, but you got... Two things made, and I'm not sure about this yet. Has this been optioned? This was optioned, yes. This was optioned. Okay. <laughs> so how how do projects cross the finish line? Like, how did yours cross? Oh, it's so difficult. First of all, I started writing movies. I wrote a screenplay called Stepmom. It wasn't my first screenplay. I'd written several, been optioned and all. But I wrote a movie called Stepmom, a screenplay called Stepmom, and that was made. But off of that experience. so sad and so good. Thank oh my you. God, one of my favorites. Thank but you. Julia Roberts, yeah. 
Plain me. <laughs> Julia Roberts was the stepmom, the ideal stepmom. And Susan Sarandon and Ed Harris, who I, when I met Ed Harris, I couldn't even look him in the eye because he's <laughs> just a temple of testosterone. So off of that, though, I, I really wanted to work by myself. And I started reading, I started writing books. And how does, I had agents and I was lucky enough to have an agent for my first book. And that was actually... Rescue Me was made into a screenplay. We had Carl Franklin attached to direct the movie, along with his wife, Jessie, to produce. And that never got made. That was my first book. I, was that 20 years ago? Who knows? Everything was 20 years ago. <laughs> if it's not 30 years ago, it was 20 years ago. And so everything takes much longer than you think. If you have an agent, they send out your book and... You know, maybe somebody wants to option it. I think with me, it could be a little bit harder because some of my books have sort of a Hollywood theme and one season that's popular, the next season it's not, blah, blah, blah. But all of my books except for one have been optioned and I feel very lucky about that, but it takes sometimes years for it to go any further than that. I have screenplays all over the place. People have written for my books, and they're great, and didn't get made. You know, Queen Takes King, and Cherkis wrote a screenplay that was so good, and it didn't get made. You know, you just never know. I'm always on the next project. I have three screenplays right now, two of which are optioned in development, and, you know, I will probably wait years for them to get made. So I write the next screenplay, or I'm writing the next book, I'm like a shark. That's what I do. A shark with a computer. <laughs> with opposable thumbs and fingers. <laughs> Too funny. <laughs> My gosh. <laughs> I know it's endless, isn't it? No, it's just amazing. <laughs> the heart of the story, though, is about this divorce. Yes. And the Agnes, the protagonist in this book, is very unexpectedly cast out of her home mm-hmm. and has to navigate what comes next, being sort of profoundly disadvantaged because the man has all this like power and his lawyer is like, you know, everybody's freaking out about his lawyer and just, yes. you know, all the, the, the cards are stacked against this woman in, yes. in the book. And yet she has to fight for her daughter, which it means more to her than anything, which as someone who's been divorced, I understand <laughs> that the, the most important thing and the thing will, you're willing to give almost anything up for is to more time with the kids. Period. Period. Absolutely. Right. So Agnes's divorce lawyer is also divorced and tells her how, you know, she waited. Like Agnes is in this position of, of pain and Anne is trying to give her advice and says, well, you know, I waited till my kids went to college, so I didn't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. But then I wasn't really myself the whole time they were growing up. Mm-hmm. So there's a trade-off, this whole waiting on for the kids versus leaving but risking time with the kids. Like, what do you, what do you think right. about all this? Pulling off the Band-Aid and just going for it. Every divorce is special like a snowflake. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice way to say that. So I'm kind of known as the divorce whisperer in my neighborhood. People will come to me and, you know, because of the starter wife and et cetera, in my own life. And they they come to me and they ask me, should I divorce? How do I do it? What are the steps? And you really have to weigh, everybody has to weigh their options and really look at their lives. If you're just bored, maybe that's not the answer, you know. 
to get divorced. If it's something, if there's abuse, uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, verbal, ongoing verbal abuse and physical abuse, obviously do whatever you can to get out. But I don't think, for a while I thought the right answer was not to divorce. I wrote something for Huffington Post that actual marriage counselors used seven reasons not to get a divorce. And I wrote this after I was divorced because I could see how hard it was on the kids whose parents were divorced and, you know, going back and forth between houses and all of that stuff that even as adults we would find difficult. But you yourself know what you need to do. If you're a grown woman, you know what you need to do for yourself and your kids. You have to like really ask yourself those questions and plan accordingly. Nobody else is going to have the answer for you. It's just something you have to go through one way or the other. I mean, some people stay together and then, you know, 20 years later, they're happy and fulfilled. I didn't see that for myself. You didn't see that for yourself and your kids and my kids. So I made that choice. And sometimes it's not even really clear, but you have to make the best with what you've got. Oh, adulting, it's so hard, isn't it? It's really so hard. Yes. Yes. And then you're making, if you have kids, you're making that choice for your children. It's terrible. Yeah. Oh, I want to go back to bed. (laughs) No, don't go back to bed. (laughs) How did you first even get into writing the screenplays that you were writing? Ah, were you someone who like always had a notebook as a kid or always read? Oh my or? God, I did have a notebook as a kid. That's like interesting. Diaries that and all that stuff. Yeah. And- diaries, notebooks, because I read, I loved Harriet the Spy. Mm-hmm. So I would write in my notebook. I would observe, yep. observe, observe, observe. And that's when, you know, kids had notebooks instead of pads, right? Yeah. So that was the start. And I, I was always a huge reader. I was. I grew up in LA in the LA basin when it was completely smoggy, terrible air quality. And I was allergic to smog, so I had to stay inside. So my mother was a principal, and a teacher and principal. My father was a stay-at-home dad who used to be in the staff sergeant in the Air Force. Hmm. He stayed home and raised four daughters. We're all 18 months apart. Oh, my gosh. So basically, if we got in a fight at school, he'd say, who got the last punch? <laughs> that was just... <laughs> Hilarious. So I was raised like a little boy. But reading was my first love, absolute first love, besides my dog Snoopy, a beagle mix. And off of that, I started working for Thick of the Night. I was an intern on Alan Thick's show. And I thought I could write some sketches. And I did. And they they were put on air when I was still in college. So I got a little taste of what could happen. And I was always a pretty good writer. I was not good at math, but I was always a pretty good writer. I'd surprise my English teachers. You know, I was like with all the gifted kids and they were always, I was 10 years old in seventh grade. I'd skip grades, and, but I was only good at writing and reading. That was it. It ended right there. So it was always inside of me. And then I saw when I was working for Fred Silverman after college, who had been head of all three networks, and now he was head of me. <laughs> that was it. That's all he had. And we managed to get seven shows on the air. But I saw how much, this is so me, I saw how much the writers were getting paid, the TV writers. And I thought, can I swear or no? I thought I can write just as, let's insert bad word, but 
just as badly as they can. Like, I can write this crap and get paid this much. I didn't think, I can write just as well. <laughs> I thought, I can write this. This is terrible. <laughs> and so I started writing screenplays. And I took classes and just getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning and writing before I went to work in my old Ford Falcon. And eventually I had screenplays optioned. And then, like I said, Stepmom was made. And to my husband, I call my husband, it's much nicer. My husband's credit, he's, he always believed in me, in that, that I could get a movie made. And he gave me the time, the gift of time. So I was able to stay home and write books. I could quit my job after eight years and just write. So I will all, I'm so grateful for that. In addition, of course, in addition to our beautiful boys or kind of adults now. So that's, it was always just in me. And it's my solace and it's my tyrant. Like Winston Churchill said about writing, he said, it started out as my mistress and became my tyrant. Basically paraphrasing Winston Churchill because we're so similar. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But that's what I do. You know, it comes... You can't give it up. If you are compelled, then you you must follow through because you will be very unhappy if you do not. Very true. Yes. So what are you working on now? Okay. Well, like I said, I well, I'm working on a, another screenplay now. I go back and forth between books and screenplays. Okay. I like that because screenplays are mostly dialogue, you know, and you have to work within a paradigm. And then novels, you can kind of let loose more. So I like to toggle back and forth between screenplays and maybe someday I'll do a play. But my my next book, I'm kind of, I'm looking to see what that is, but I think it's somewhere in, I always believed that my sisters were witches. Like they could predict things that I didn't see coming. And I've been able to do that sort of thing myself and sometimes bad things. So there's something in that arena, and I'm just finding out about L.A. and their their covens. It's really interesting. There's a whole world out there. It's not just yoga, people. <laughs> I mean, it's a lot of that, too. So Says the woman drinking alkaline, balanced water. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I need that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring screenwriters or novelists? Yes. Learn everything you can and keep learning and just write five days a week. Write five days a week. Take a half an hour, even 20 minutes, and just that, just sitting down with no distraction, even for that short period of time, you will, at the end of the year, at the end of six months, you will come up with something that is complete. It's a first draft, but it's still complete. I mean, Stephen King said, write a thousand words a day. He writes 2,000 words. So that's what I do with a first draft novel. And honestly, the slower you go, the faster you get there. It's just methodical. There's no magic in it. The magic comes from doing. Does that make sense? Totally. Or am I just high? I like when you said <laughs> the slower you go, the faster you get there. That's my theme. I like that. That's a good I, one. I should put that on some pillows or maybe some journals. I feel like I came I came up with that a long time ago because I this is so embarrassing, but in junior high I was the slowest runner in my entire PE class <laughs> in public school. Can you imagine? 
Meanwhile, my sister, 18 months older, fastest. But so I relate to turtles, tortoises, to snails. The slower you go, the faster you get there. Just every day is a new opportunity. Just keep moving. I like that. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on Mom's No Time to Read Books and sharing your hilarious story. I'm so honored. Married that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much to Claire Mazur and Eric Cerullo and their amazing podcast, A Thing or Two, which you should definitely check out. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 